0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Malachi chapter 3 is where we're at, but we kind of have to back up into chapter 2, and that's because at the end of chapter 2, the Lord God is is telling, he has a complaint against the people. And uh, so... Chapter uh, 2, verse 17 is really where, uh, you know, I I don't know why they divided chapter 3 where it was, but really chapter 2, verse 17 kind of is a continuation and flows into chapter 3. So we're going to go ahead and look at that. So chapter 2, verse 17, God's complaint against the people, and really what it boils down to is their attitude. You know, uh, we can go through the motions of loving the Lord. We can go through the motions of, 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 of you know, we do all the right things. We go to church. We, we minister. Maybe we volunteer different things. Or, you know, we have a we, we seem to have a smile. But, but really, our hearts may not be in the right place. And this is what God is dealing with with the people. It's their attitude. And it really will be reflected here in what the Lord says. So Malachi 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So what was their attitude? They were grumbling and they were complaining against God. God, basically what they're saying, God allows evil to continue and prosper, and he blesses, he seems to even bless the evildoer. And, you know, when we look at our society around us, don't you sometimes feel that way? It's like, man, why do, the, why do the wicked just, they seem to prosper? And you and I that are trying to seek the Lord, you know, there's always, there's oppositions or there's things that occur. Well, these people were complaining against God. And then they said, where's the God of justice? And basically what they were doing was that they were accusing God of being unjust and assigning evil to him. And really, it stems from an attitude that they had. And the attitude that they had is, I want justice. You know, we we want to have justice. And, you know, if we are honest with ourselves this morning, we only want justice when someone has sinned against us, when someone else has done something wrong, right? We want God's justice. But when it comes to ourselves and our own lives, man, I don't want God's justice, man. I need his mercy, I'm crying out for his mercy. But here their attitude is, where's the God of justice? And so God replies to them, and his reply is basically, God who is just will return to rectify the situation. And that's where we get into chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What's very interesting about that first verse is that there's two different messengers being prophesied in verse one. Very fascinating. But you know what's even more fascinating than the fact that there's two messengers being spoken of in verse one? The name Malachi literally means my messenger. It's Malach. Is the word. And these messengers, these same Hebrew words in verse one is Malach. So there's actually three Malach. There's Malachi speaking about two different Malachi, or two different Malachs, two different messengers. Now, Malachi is not prophesying about himself here in verse one. There it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. He is prophesying about another messenger. And this messenger was also prophesied by Isaiah. Uh, Many years earlier, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So who is this messenger? Well, you know, in every single one of the Gospels, all four Gospels, it becomes abundantly clear that this messenger who's being prophesied, both in Isaiah and in Malachi, is none other than John the Baptist. In fact, John, in John's Gospel, John the Baptist is being asked, who is he? And in chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's quoting from Isaiah 40. Um, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John himself said, I'm the fulfillment of this prophecy. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself is speaking about that. In Matthew 11, verse 10, he's speaking about John the Baptist. He says, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And you can find that in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. It's clear. It makes it clear that John the Baptist is this messenger now, this making the way, you know, clearing the way, making the way straight, making the path straight and preparing the way for the Lord. In ancient times, before the arrival of a king, a messenger would go ahead of the king and he would announce the king's arrival and he would prepare the way. He would indicate the route of the king and he'd remove any obstacles in the road so the king could just come right into wherever, wherever he was going. And this is what John the Baptist fulfilled. You know, he announced the arrival of the King of Kings. He prepared the hearts of the people to receive him through repentance. And uh, but now in uh, verse one, Malachi is speaking of another messenger, and now it's becomes clear that it's not John the Baptist, it's another one. And it says there, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So who is this other messenger? It's none other than the Lord God himself. He says, the Lord whom you seek. Now, were they seeking? Remember back in chapter 2, they said, where's the God of justice? Well, the Lord whom you seek, that God of justice, will suddenly come to his temple. Well, it's a question now. When did the Lord suddenly come to his temple? You know when the very first time was when he came to his temple? He was a baby. He was an infant. The very first time he was an infant. Now, there was a great, hopeful expectation. Remember, Rome was the, the occupying power, so to speak, of Israel at that time. And they ruled with an iron fist. And, and the Jewish people, I mean, they were just felt so oppressed by the Romans. They were, at that point, they were ripe for a Messiah. They were wanting to be delivered from Roman oppression and Roman rule. And so they had this great hopeful expectation that the Lord, the Messiah, the promised one, would return But when he suddenly did show up in the temple, there was only two people that recognized him. Only two people out of the entire nation of Israel. Who were they? It's recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." So there was the first person it was Simeon. But it continues in Luke's gospel there, and it says now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So the only two people that saw the Lord when he suddenly came into his temple was Simeon and Anna. Everyone else in the temple that day, and there probably were other people around there, what did they see? They just saw some young woman, a young mother and her and and her husband bringing in a little baby, a little baby boy to be to be circumcised. He looked no different than any other child, but you see both Simeon and Anna they were expecting the Messiah and they were looking for and waiting for the promised messiah and they saw him what with the eyes of faith see. Many in that day, again, like I said, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They were hoping for the coming of the Messiah. And they were probably in their minds expecting this warrior to show up, a king ready to fight Rome and to throw off Roman rule. And that, you know, he'd have an army with him and he'd show up in this grand splendor in the temple. But what did the Lord do? The Lord came as a meek, defenseless, humble infant. You know, many times... You and I, we have expectations right on the Lord. We, we have some situation in our life, maybe a trial in our life or something, and we want the Lord to show up and we have this, this thing of, okay, Lord, you're going to show up in this way. And, and he does show up, but many times not as we expected. Many times he shows up in ways that are just like, well, that's not the way I expected it to happen. It's funny when we were uh, when we were in the process of selling the church, the, old, the other building there. Uh, you know, we had it lined up pretty much with this one church, and they, they, I mean, they had visited our church about four different times. They'd gone through, they checked it out. We put on the phone with them off and on. And I'm like, man, these are them. The Lord provided this person, and uh, and then that fell through. It's like we weren't expecting that. We had already made an offer on this place. The Lord already, or the. The people already accepted our offer, so it was like, oh, great, now what do we do? The Lord did show up, and out of the blue, we got this call from another church that said, we want to buy your church. You see, sometimes we have this expectation, God, you're going to show up, you're going to do this this way, and then God doesn't show up that way. But God does show up, but you know, what we need is the eyes of faith, because when we're looking for him with the eyes of faith, when he does show up, we'll see him. Now, there's other instances in the gospel when Jesus came to the temple. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old. He showed up at the temple with his parents. And uh, they came with the whole group of people. His parents and the, and the family left. And, and they were about a day's journey away. And all of a sudden they realized, where's Jesus? He wasn't with the rest. And so they went back looking for him. And they found him sitting in the temple. And he was sitting among the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He was listening to them teaching, and he was asking them questions, and they were blown away by the, by the knowledge and the understanding of this young man, this 12-year-old man, young man, excuse me. But remember their complaint back in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17? Where is the God of justice? Well, later on in Jesus' ministry, the people received a foretaste of the God of justice. <laughs> Just just a little just a little taste of what it would be like when he returns to his temple, and that 's when he later on returned, And remember he drove out the money changers and the sellers of doves and he went through there and just he just completely disrupted that that criminal enterprise basically that was going on in the temple now Malachi here describes Jesus. Uh, As the messenger of the covenant, and really, he was to fulfill the covenant of the law and usher in the new covenant of grace. And the Jews, they wanted a messenger of justice, and instead, Jesus suddenly appears in his temple as a messenger of the covenant. Now, when we go through, and you know, as we've been going through, and we've we've been through the minor prophets, or this is the last of the minor prophets. Almost all the prophets, without exception, uh, I think for the most part, they foresaw and they prophesied the first and the second coming of Jesus. And to them, uh, the whole mystery of of the age of grace, the church age. It was a mystery to them. So a lot of times when they're prophesying, they're prophesying the first and the prophesying of the second, and they're kind of just sandwiched together. And the prophets, they, they had a hard time, it was a mystery to them about the church age. In fact, Peter writes about it. In first Peter one, verse ten, he says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified. Beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So they were prophesying about, uh, you know, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. But they were also prophesying about the glorious return of of the of the Messiah. And they're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa when does this all happen?" And so they were confused. They were trying to figure it out. That. Age of grace, the church age, it was a mystery. It was right between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In Malachi here, it seems to be no exception because verse 1 is describing Christ's first coming. But verse 2, he skips over the church age and is going right down into his second coming. So here... In verse, uh, starting with verse 2, the God of justice will return. And this is what Malachi speaks of now. Verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near for uh, near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord. So when the church age has come to an end, With the rapture of the church, Jesus is going to once more deal directly with the nation of Israel during the great tribulation. That's the time that Jeremiah describes the time of Jacob's trouble. It says he will cleanse and purify his people as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Now, what's interesting about it is a beautiful picture here, a refiner of silver. What they did is they put the silver into the fire, and as the heat melted the silver, all the impurities would rise to the top, would rise to the surface, and he would continually scrape away those impurities as they continued to rise up. And finally, he would, when he knew that the, the silver was pure, he could see his reflection in the molten silver. that great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, it's going to be not only a time when God dispenses justice on a Christ-rejecting nation, excuse me, a Christ-rejecting world, but it's also going to be a trial by fire for the nation of Israel. And during that time, he's going to purify a people for himself. Paul describes it in Romans. He says all Israel will be saved at that time. You know, many times in our lives as believers, The Lord allows you and I to go through the fires of trials, you know, and situations come up and we we experience the heat of trials, but they're not to burn us out. They're to purify us. Jesus wants to remove the impurities that come to the surface. You know, when your life is going good, you can kind of you know you can kind of maintain things but when you get into the trials of fire man that's when the impurities come up man that's when the attitudes come up and that's when you know the 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 lack of faith and those things they 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 rise to the surface at that time and the lord god he wants to remove those impurities so he can finally see his reflection in us and that will reflect him to the world around us now back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we were there a couple weeks ago, remember Malachi? uh, In in chapters 1 and 2, God was condemning the priests. In chapters 1 and 2, they were offering corrupt sacrifices. You know, they were supposed to bring an unblemished lamb, a a, a male lamb, one-year-old. It was to be unblemished. There was to be no defects. It wasn't to be lame. And, and, And by this time, what were the priests doing? They were saving those best ones for themselves. And if they had a deformed lamb, they're like, well, oh, man, that, that's the one I'll bring to the temple because I don't need that one. And God was condemning them for offering their deformed and blemished animals to the Lord while keeping the best for themselves. You know, there are people that do that today. They, they only give the Lord the leftovers of their time, talent, and treasure. And God wants and deserves our first and our best of everything. And because these Levites there in chapter one and two, because they were offering cheap, defiled sacrifices, the Lord didn't even want their sacrifices. It didn't mean anything to him. But here when he comes to refine and purify his people, they're gonna once more offer acceptable offerings to him. You know what's fascinating about that? We're talking about the time of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation is the start of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. What we know is the millennium, the millennial reign. And what's interesting, if you go to Ezekiel, don't turn there now, but if you go to Ezekiel and you look at chapters 44 and chapters 46, during the millennium, there are going to be certain Levitical priests, particularly the sons of Zadok, they're going to offer sacrifices and offerings on the altar of the millennial temple in Jerusalem. And you go, well, wait a minute how can that be? I mean, I thought Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifices and all and the offerings. That's all under the old covenant. Why, why is there going to be sacrifices in the millennium? And it's like, it's, it's a mystery, right? Well, this is all that I can think of. You know, we celebrate communion. Um, we do that one Sunday a month here. And Jesus isn't dying again on the cross, he's, he's not shedding his blood again for us, he's done it once. The Bible says in Hebrews, one sacrifice for, for all time. His blood still washes away sin. The blood that he shed 2,000 years, it still washes away sin. You can confess your sin to Jesus Christ and his blood will cleanse you. But we still commemorate Communion. We still commemorate that time. You know, we we're, we're remembering back, and all I can think of is during the millennium, these sacrifices—they're not to be to earn our salvation or or to to make us pleasing to God or anything, but but they're going to be done. What appears to me and from scriptures, anyways, as a remembrance of what He did, just a reminder of that sacrifice that He that He did for us. And uh, in verse 5, when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, he says, and I will come near you for judgment. Again, remember their cry in 2.17, chapter 2, verse 17, where's the God of justice? Well, he says, I'm going to be near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. You know, what always amazes me when there's a, this major law case or, you know, someone's gone to, gone to jail or they're arrested for something. And, uh, you know, it seems like it takes a long time before they finally, before justice is finally meted out. You know, there's all these processes of, of getting witnesses, of selecting a jury and going through all that process. And sometimes it can take over a year or two before the trial finally takes place. And it's like, man, justice is not swift. It's slow and it can be frustrating sometimes. But when Jesus returns, judgment's going to be swift and he's going to be his own witness. He's not going to have to call witnesses. I'll be the witness is what he's basically saying. I will be a swift witness. So sin will be dealt with immediately because the Lord will not only judge, but he'll also be the witness. Uh, There won't be any protracted justice. You know, right now we look around us and we see things. We go, Lord, why are these people getting away with the, the things that they're getting away with? But at that time, the Lord's going to act swiftly, as he says, against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I always think about that verse. It says, because they do not fear me. And I think a lot of times in our lives, you know, when, when we allow ourselves to continue in sin, it's, it's basically because we don't fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what keeps you and I from from sinning against him. Well, going on to verse 6, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Remember back in Genesis, Moses, you know, the Lord revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he sent Moses back to to Egypt to to let his people go free to go to Pharaoh, and remember at one point there as as Moses is is getting to know the Lord at one point Moses says, "Lord, will you reveal yourself? Can I see your glory?" and and the Lord God says, "No, you can't. I mean, nobody, no flesh can see me and survive." but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And, and he hit him in the cleft of the rock and the glory of the Lord passed by and he just basically saw the tail end of, of, the, of the glory of the Lord passing by. And at that time, the Lord pronounced to, to Moses, says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God's a God of grace and mercy, but he's also a God of justice. God has not changed. He's still a God of justice, but he is also still a God of mercy, a God of great mercy, a, a patient, loving God. And... Because God is gracious and merciful, his people have not been consumed. You remember, I mean, how many years did the children of Israel rebel against the Lord? From the beginning, from the, from the very day that they were delivered out of Egypt, to that point, they started grumbling and complaining. All the way through those 40 years, all the way as it became a nation, later on, they started rebelling against the Lord, and they started uh, adopting the practices of the nations around them. And for 400 years, God kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet to them, warning them to repent patiently with them. You know, some people, they have a skewed view of God. They look at the God of the Old Testament, they go, man, he's a he's a vengeful, intolerant, bloodthirsty God. And then and then Jesus seems to be like this, you know, like this mamby-pamby appeaser. And, and it's like, w- there's like two different gods there. Well, no, God is the same. You know, back when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, even at that point, Way back in the beginning, God already had the plan of salvation for his people. God had already revealed to Eve, hey, your seed, that coming from your seed would be the savior of the, of the human race. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. In fact, God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. So God hasn't changed. And because he hasn't changed, they, they haven't been consumed. What a, what a blessing to have a God that's patient with you and I. Well, verse 7, he says, Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? Verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In, oh, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? And his answer is, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. H- how had they left the Lord? In the neglect of the giving of their tithes and their offerings. Now what is a tithe? A tithe is literally a tenth. A tenth of what you, what you bring in, a tenth you give back to the Lord and you keep the ninety. An offering was anything that was freely given over and above that tithe. And and the Lord was telling the children of Israel, hey, you've robbed me. You've held back what belongs to me. Now, God didn't need their money. God doesn't need our money as well. But in reality, not just the 10th, but all of it, the 100% of it, belongs to the Lord in the first place. Uh, Some people have a hard time with this. Like, man, I've worked for my money. I've earned it. It's my money. And now the church is asking for money, you know, or so whatever. Um, but you know what? If you think about it, who gives you the intellect to do your job? Who gives you the health or the physical stamina to do what you do? It all comes from God. It all belongs to God. In James 1 verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Giving back to God acknowledges externally that it all comes from him in the first place. It reflects the attitude of our hearts. Again, going back to that attitude. Remember, the attitude at the end of chapter 2 was the attitude was, hey, God is, is you know, they were, they were assigning guilt and, and, and evil to God. You know, where's the God of justice? He's allowing all these things to happen. Well, now he's addressing their attitude. And what was their attitude? It was greed and selfishness. You see, God's a giver. Did you know that he didn't hold back from each one of you? He gave you and I the most costly, precious gift that he could ever give anyone. You know, sometimes, you know, I remember one time we uh, we had a Ford Aerostar, and uh, it was starting to run kind of kind of rough and stuff, and I, I was just tired of bringing it into the shop. In fact, um, the mechanic that, that we brought it to, he hated Ford Aerostars because just that so hard to get to the motors. And finally, at one point, he goes, hey, can you do me a favor? I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, don't bring your truck here anymore. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, that was not a good sign when the mechanic says, please don't bring it back anymore. Um, and so uh, after a while, uh, there was another guy who was a pastor here in the area. He's since left, but he, he was a pastor. He, he was a mechanic by, by trade. And I said, Hey I've got this car I'd like to give you and and uh so we gave him the car but we had got a new van it wasn't a new van it was a used van but it was it was new to us and it was nice it ran good didn't have any problems and uh and so I gave him the the junkie van basically cuz he's a mechanic he you know he can have fun with it and everything and and I kept back what was good for me and uh, where where am I getting with it, going with this I'm I'm just confessing to you guys I guess <laughs> but you know so often we hold back you know when we're, when we donate things, I mean this place, if you saw it two weeks ago, half of that or at least a quarter of this room was to the almost to the ceiling, just piled with junk people do, you know people just donate junk, you know we don 't donate the you know we get a brand new couch, oh, I want to go bring it to goodwill <laughs> no no, no no, I, but I keep the new couch and i 'm going to give you the old one that's that 's our human nature right that 's what we tend to do god didn 't hold back on any of us he gave us the very best, the most precious gift that he could give, and that was his son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't even have like, I have a spare child. I'll give you my spare. No, it's my only son. Man, I'm giving you my only son. You know, just as the refiner wants to see his reflection in the silver, God, who is a giver, wants us to reflect his heart of giving because he's a giver. What does giving do? It frees you and I. You might go, what do you mean it frees? I'm losing money. No, it actually frees you and I. It frees us from the attitude of greed and selfishness. It frees us from clinging too tightly to the things of this world that in in the end it's all going to perish anyways. Those things that we hold on so tightly to. And it frees us to reflect God in our lives. And there's one more thing that giving does. It increases our trust in the Lord. Look at verse 10. "'Bring all the tithes into the storehouse "'that there may be food in my house. "'And try me now in this,' says the Lord of hosts, "'if I will not open for you the windows of heaven "'and pour out for you such blessing "'that there will not be enough room to receive it. "'And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes.'" so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a def- delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You know, back going back to when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, many of them were consumed by the Lord. They were wiped out by the Lord. Why? He had anger with them because they tempted the Lord. They tested the Lord in their disobedience and their complaining. Did you know that here is one place in the Bible, and it might be the only place in the Bible where the Lord actually says, hey, try me, test me out. He says, try me, test me, see if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Now I gotta stop there for a moment because there are people that take this scripture and other scriptures and they've kind of developed their own doctrine and they've got these seed, these, these buzzwords, and one of the buzzwords is seed faith and the whole idea is i've got this ministry and if you plant a seed faith gift in other words you give some money to this ministry you're 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 planting a seed of faith uh, the lord's going to multiply your seed by x amount maybe a thousandfold or whatever and it almost they, they it comes across like this get rich quick investment thing you know you pay 10 you get 100 back you know or whatever it is um you know the funny thing about people that teach and profess that, that belief, if they really, truly believed it, I mean, if they really, really believed in that seed faith giving, they would be mailing out seed faith checks to you and I, I'd be opening up my mail tomorrow and go, ah, another one from Benny, you know, or, or, hey, Creflo, oh, my buddy, he gave me another check, because why? Because if they really believed in that seed, they'd be giving money to everybody else because then God's going to bless their ministry, but for some reason, it only goes one way with these guys. You give to my ministry and God will bless you. But that's not what this is talking about. That's taking an extreme you know, position basically for selfish purposes. But I want to share with you this morning, the Lord does challenge his people to trust him in the area of giving, in the area of tithing. Test him. See if he does not meet your needs and bless you abundantly. Now, there are Christians that would disagree with this whole thing about tithing, and they'd say, well, tithing is only under the Old Covenant. You know, it's only Jesus fulfilled that and did away with tithing under the New Covenant. And there's a couple things um, that, you know, kind of jump out at me. First of all, in Romans, Paul is talking about uh, Abraham. You know, uh, Abraham was justified by faith. Faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, um, and he goes through this whole thing of explaining that he did it before the law was given. So righteousness is not based on the fa- on, on law. It was reckoned to him before law. Well, by the same token, Abraham, uh, when he returned from this one battle, he met this priest named Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, myself and probably other people believe that that's a pre-incarnate, appearance of Jesus. Another, they call it a Christophany. Another, Jesus appeared at different times in the Old Testament uh, physically there. Um, and I, so I believe Melchizedek was, but what, whether it is or not, that's, that's kind of immaterial at this point. But Abraham gave a tenth. He gave a tithe to Melchizedek, and that was long before the covenant, the law on tithing and giving ever came. So tithing precedes the law. It precedes the Old Testament law. Um, and then you get into the New Testament and, and the principle of setting aside a portion of your earnings for the work of the Lord, it's described by Paul. Remember the Jerusalem church was, they were going through a famine, they were suffering. The, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, you know, they came to faith in the Lord and all of a sudden their, their Jewish family and the people around them said, you're a, not a Jew no longer, you're a traitor. They couldn't work. They were persecuted very severely in Jerusalem. And so the Jerusalem church was poor. They were suffering. And so all these Gentile churches, you know, they were prosperous. And so Paul said, hey, you guys should set aside some money and we'll give it to the, to the, uh, um, to the suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. That principle of setting aside a portion is described in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Paul says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And, you know, again, the Lord doesn't need your and my money, but he does want your entire heart surrendered surrendered to him. And if we're honest, all of us, this is one of the toughest areas for people to surrender to the Lord. Our finances, it's a tough place. Because, why? It, it, it's so near and dear to us because we have that attitude of wanting to keep. But also, it's, it's a fear thing, man. If I, if I give that, I won't have enough for me. I can tell you firsthand from my own experience. I learned early on in life just to start tithing. And, you know, basically, I don't even think about it. It, it just happens. And you know what? The Lord's always blessed us. He's always provided I don't, I don't drive a fancy Rolls Royce or anything like that. No, but God's always met my needs and, and abundantly many times over and over again. Uh, you know, this would be a perfect time for now to have some ushers come forward with collection plates. I mean, it'd be like, this would be awesome <laughs> if we were the type of church that does that, but we don't. Um, we basically have a tithe box in the back and it's set aside basically for people whose hearts, the Lord moves your heart, you donate, that's up to you. Um, if the Lord prompts you to give, but, but I do want to say this. Giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship between you and the Lord. Um, and again, it's all about attitude this morning. Um, the Lord wants you and I to have an attitude of gratitude, recognizing that everything that, that we have, it comes from him, and it's it's his in the first place. And he wants you and I to be free from greed and selfishness. He wants us to be unencumbered with the things of this life. So we're growing in faith, trusting him in all areas of our lives, including our finances, and accurately reflecting him, that God who, who gave himself for us. I mean, he's the ultimate giver, and he wants us to be reflection of him in our giving. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to stop here. We'll finish Malachi next week. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for each and every person here, Lord. I, I thank you for their, uh, for their lives, for their, um, just how you've you've brought all of us together here this morning, Lord. I know that this can sometimes be a touchy subject, and and uh, Lord, I just I just pray that you would just work on people's hearts, Lord, um, just to trust you, and Lord, I pray that. Uh, Lord, you would bless each and every person, Lord, here this morning. Father, as we go through our week, Lord, I pray that we might see you, Lord, that we might look for you with the eyes of faith, Lord, and that we would see how you do, you are faithful, and you do show up in the circumstances, even when we don't expect you, Lord, that we would, we would, we would look for you. And Lord Jesus, um, just pray your blessing on your people this morning. Thank you for them, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.